Welcome to The Hale Report, August 19th, 2019. Joining me today at our studio in Chicago for another in-depth EconView podcast is Nikolai Tagarov. We're here to discuss Venezuela, but more importantly, what Venezuela means in a new geopolitical order that is evolving from unipolarity to what our guest believes is regional multipolarity, flavored in this hemisphere by an updated Monroe Doctrine. Nick looks at Venezuela from the perspective of global flows of energy, people, and yes, illegal drugs. A native of Bulgaria, but a citizen of the world, Nick has consulted the European Commission and multinational corporations on these subjects worldwide, and he is here to share those views today. Recently in the news, it's been disclosed that President Trump um, was trying to create an embargo of Venezuela. Nick, what do you think about that? And... How do you look at what's happening today with the Trump administration in Venezuela? Well, uh, thank you, Larry. Um, um, first of all, I would like to um, uh, and thank you for your generous introduction. I would like to um, say a few more things about myself. So indeed, I did um, uh, consult the European Commission on anti-corruption, um, on uh, the interaction between corruption and organized crime, on energy policy and immigration issues. And um, I'll say that Venezuela is interesting to me, uh, first of all, because of the uh, unique interaction of all of these um, issues. Um, and uh, it's a good example of how they can be interrelated. Um, and I'm here to also explain why Venezuela is of interest to the United States as well, not just to myself. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's um, important to the United States um, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, there is a regime which has been, um, with its rhetoric, um, uh, vociferously anti-American uh, and has attracted the attention of several um, administrations. Uh, but it's, it's not just that. It's uh, um, the um, collapse of the economy, uh, the ensuing refugee crisis, which I would argue uh, directly but also indirectly is um, caused by events in Venezuela uh, the drug uh, production and trafficking that occurs there. Um, um, and third, of all, third uh, Venezuelan oil, I would argue, is not important in the um, era of uh, fracking in the United States uh, as the United States become, becomes self-sufficient in energy. So I'll discuss these three issues, um, drug um, trafficking and production, uh, refugee flows, and... Um, uh, oil as it relates to Venezuela. Thank you, Nick. Um, that, that again is um, very much in line with my uh, expertise. Wonderful. And, you know, why do we care about Venezuela? It's a basket case economy. Um, the world, the IMF has just released some figures saying that their GDP has fallen 60% in five years, which is near a world record. Uh -huh. um, employment is almost 50%. Um, inflation is, boggles the mind 289,000%. Why do we care about Venezuela? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Um, it depends on how you define um, care. Uh, 
we care about Venezuela as Americans exactly because of these issues, because they um, create problems for the United States. They impact us. Of course, we care about Venezuelans, uh, and we should, and we should, um, and that's one of the one of the issues with the Trump administration that. As it exerts pressure on the uh, Venezuelan government, it doesn't seem to be very generous to Venezuelans coming into the country and applying for asylum. Um, <clears throat> but I'm not going to focus on that. Indeed, um, the uh, what I'm going to focus on is <clears throat> the um, pressure on the United States and uh, what we can do about it. Um, and... Um, um, one thing I want to discuss in particular is uh, the fact that Venezuela is a basket case, as you described it. The economy is um, uh, going down. Um, that creates um, a refugee crisis. Now, when you look at um, – uh, and the United States itself is facing the biggest refugee crisis in Correct. its history. Mm -hmm. um, um, so it's understandable to some extent, um, you know, how the United States government, the current administration, is acting given uh, given this uh, pressure. Um, but when you look, when first of all, when we look at um, um, Venezuelan refugees, where do they go? Um, the um, while the number of asylum seekers in uh, from Venezuela into the United States has increased dramatically. Um, by, um, like in f uh, 2014, uh, we had just 92 applications filed. By September 2018, that number had increased by 2,300%, uh, with 2,190 applications. Uh, but of course, that number, um, uh, given the massive inf uh, influx of refugees at the southern border, is uh, insignificant um, as an absolute number. Um, 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 eight out of ten Venezuelan refugees stay in Latin America and the Caribbean. Is that right? That is um, according to data from um, the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, so it impacts you know, all of it impacts the all of the states. Americans, right? But I would argue that the um, uh, impact of the crisis in Venezuela is more indirect. Um, and it comes via drug trafficking, which is now shifting from, has shifted from Colombia uh, to um, Venezuela uh, with the support of uh, corrupt officials. Uh, and uh, that drug trafficking, um, the, the drugs flow to Central America where they create all kinds of issues uh, and violence and the majority of the refugees coming to the southern border of the United States are driven by the violence that it's, it ensues from um, that problem, from drug trafficking. Right. So um, the issue with migration pressure um, uh, is more indirect when I it comes to Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, and so what kind of drug protect, uh, production is taking place now in Venezuela? Um, drug production, um, well, most of it is still in Colombia, okay. uh, cocaine specifically. Um, some of the production has shifted, uh, according to some uh, commentators, to Venezuela. But um, as the government has cracked down on uh, traffickers in Colombia, and as the government in Colombia has also cooperated with uh, uh, 
the drug enforcement uh, enforcement uh, authorities in the United States, um, it has become more difficult to uh, traffic from Colombia directly to Central America and then onto Mexico and then the southern border of the United States. Now the trafficking occurs uh, mostly across the border um, um, from Colombia into Venezuela. And then, uh, and th this happens with the uh, um, uh, support of corrupt officials. Um, and then from Venezuela, it flows via planes, uh, typically, to um, the Central American states, Honduras, Guatemala, and so on. And from there, on to Mexico. And drug violence has increased dramatically everywhere in Central America and Mexico, uh, as you know. Um, so again, this is the major um, um, reason behind um, the refugee crises. Mm. So uh, what you're saying is the supply chains have the supply chains have shifted shifted yeah. to Venezuela yeah. from Colombia, and this. Uh, but it's also easier to to traffic uh, now. The, the quantities themselves have increased. So hence, um, the violence has increased, um, and um, that's why it's such a big problem. So does it? Do, what happens in Venezuela doesn't stay in Venezuela. It doesn't stay in Venezuela, indeed. And what about Venezuelan oil? And how is the U.S. As you said, is because of fracking technology, we're not as dependent on Venezuelan oil, but the rest of the world, they're certainly still a major oil-producing state. What's the state of energy in Venezuela? Well, oil is why um, China is in Venezuela, uh, because China is not self-sufficient in oil. Uh, but I'm not going to discuss that. I mean, that's just a, a business decision uh, of China's. Um, uh, my point was that uh, the U.S. is not interested in Venezuela's oil. That's not why uh, the Trump administration um, has is after the regime. Um, oil is interesting uh, to me uh, as an illustration of um, what happens when a socialist type of economy relies on oil revenues uh, to um, support massive spending without thinking of um, the consequences when oil prices um, inevitably go down as in Russia as in Russia as in uh, as it, that's mm -hmm. why the Soviet Union collapsed um, that's exactly the same uh, thing that is occurring in uh, Venezuela um, so uh, and of course Venezuela has massive reserves it has the biggest reserves of uh, oil in, in the world as you know um, but because of um, the way it has um, uh, utilized its oil revenues, it hasn't uh, maintained um, facilities uh, um, well enough to allow for increased production when oil prices fall down. They underinvested they when under they had the money. significantly, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, so on a number of uh, uh, levels, they have mismanaged the economy. But the biggest issue is that they relied on, on oil to... Uh, um, basically finance the whole economy. As oil revenues have come down, indeed, um, corrupt officials have turned to drug trafficking 
either is uh, um, protection um, money from uh, for you know allowing the uh, trafficking for existing traffickers, or they have engaged in it directly. So As, income substitution for yeah, corruption exactly. officials. Yeah, and um, I, I will we will link um, an article talking about um, the. Uh, uh, Cartel of the Sons, uh, which is a loose um, network of corrupt officials, uh, including the former vice president of, uh, of the country, who have been engaged in drug trafficking. Um, again, that is uh, in order to basically um, support um, the state administration. It's it's state's state policy now. When I advised the European Commission on the link between corruption and organized crime in uh, Europe. There were some countries where um, the issues were so serious that it was actually difficult to conceptually distinguish the two terms, corruption and organized crime. And that's exactly, uh, you know, it reminds me of, of uh, those situations, but it's many times worse what we see uh, in Venezuela, in my opinion. Um, so... So all these three issues are inextricably linked, Indeed. is what you're saying. In a very interesting in mm-hmm. a very interesting way. And going in the wrong direction. Going, unfortunately, in the wrong direction. What could change that momentum, Nick, in your view? Um, <clears throat> well, obviously, um, the United States is seeking regime change. I don't think um, the situation can change without that. Um, but hopefully that happens peacefully. And hopefully it happens with, um, um, you know, via elections. Uh, my concern is that um, the regime is so dependent on the status quo and on, um, the, you know, the support of the army, which is complicit in, in drug trafficking. And they know that if the regime changes um, and uh, if the regime um, cooperates with the United States government to mitigate uh, these issues. Um, they know that they will lose their, you know, source of um, financial um, survival, really. Um, so it is difficult. Um, it be worse to look at what happened to the Iraqi army. Indeed, mm-hmm. indeed. Um, but I would argue <clears throat> that, uh, and maybe this... Um, we will discuss this in more detail in the second part of our uh, conversation when we talk about geopolitics. Um, but I would argue that the United States, although it is um, willing to consider military action, and although, although the uh, Trump administration, Trump um, personally, is known to be um, um, decisive, if I can put it mildly in situations like these. Uh, it can be very risky to um, to do this in the current context um, because um, this is not Panama, where you know Noriega was deposed by military action. This is a vast country with um, massive jungle territories where you can have guerrilla warfare, you can have the army fall back and engage in um, all kinds of attacks against um, 
any military operation by the United States. It's not going to happen so, on the first term. So Juan Guido, who was elected by the parliament as mm-hmm. president, was unable to assume that role because he didn't have the backing of the military, is what you're saying. Of the military, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. No. Mm-hmm. If there is any resolution um, militarily, then it will be in the second term of the Trump administration. Uh, until then, um, my guess is that um, the U.S. government will try other, um, other, other ways to, but I don't see a way out, to be okay. honest. And so this embargo, you think, would be in- ineffective. Venezuela only has one side um, to the sea. It's the rest of it is... Uh, land borders so even an embargo could be overcome as you said potentially uh, the main issue with uh, yes it, um, I don't see much of, of a point to the embargo if it's just a naval uh, embargo, a naval embargo. Mm-hmm. Un- un- unless the US government starts taking down the planes that flow and that's difficult because they fly without transponders so it's difficult to track them um, it's interesting that they usually US they originated in, in the United States. They're bought by shell companies um, um, at auctions in the United States. They're flown to um, to uh, Venezuela and Colombia, and from there they flow to the Central American countries. Um, but um, and what's also interesting is that often they just uh, dump the planes. They um, land. They take the drugs. And then they set the planes on fire because the the price of the planes compared to the the cargo massive uh, uh, profits from the cargo are insignificant, and they hide their tracks uh, in this way. So um, unless there is, and, and as I said, it's difficult because the transponders are uh, are off. Uh, but unless you start start going after the planes themselves with the cargo on them, uh, it's not going to help. So what we really need is an embargo on selling. It sounds like small planes. That is a good policy recommendation. I would, mm-hmm. um, I would definitely strongly recommend exactly that. Stop sales of small planes at auctions to uh, companies that um, you cannot verify. Uh, you know who, who is behind those companies. So know your customer. Know your pilot. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So there are pro- probably things that could be done in mm-hmm. a thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. to stem the tide. Yeah. But you see all of this as part of a much bigger picture, Nick, and we've talked about this, and um, I'd love for you to share with our listeners how you're looking at the world in terms of what I talked about at the very beginning, which was moving from a unipolar world based mm-hmm. on the United States, not just to a multipolar world, but a multipolar by region, mm-hmm. is, if I understand your world for you now. Exactly. Okay. Uh, as I as I see it, uh, and I, I haven't changed my views very much um, ever since my graduate student days, when I read a very interesting book by uh, Mr. Gilpin, uh, Global Political Economy, and he um, informed my 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 views to a great extent. Um, but. Um, maybe we can talk in more detail in another podcast. Okay, but, about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but basically, basically, what I 
see as um, emerging um, is an order where the United States is withdrawing from the world from the role of global policeman because um, maybe you're familiar with Peter Zion, Zion um, who has been arguing for a while that um, the U.S. is providing um, public goods, protection for international trade flows, and the benefits uh, massively outweigh, I mean, the, the costs massively outweigh the benefits. So it is a question of time especially now that the U.S. is pretty much self-sufficient in energy and food and everything. Uh, it's just a question of time before uh, the United States withdraws from its um, role of um, hegemon, global hegemon. Um, and the Trump administration is only um, accelerating that move, as we see. Um, my argument is that as this occurs... The U.S. is not just going to withdraw completely. Uh, it is going to fall back to its stance in international relations that it had before it became a global hegemon. Uh, and that is the Monroe Doctrine. And um, John Bolton, who is the national security advisor for the president, now he's not the president. Uh, and uh, yes, the president sometimes contradicts his um, uh, administration officials. Uh, but uh, he hasn't contradicted John Bolton's statement that um, the Monroe Doctrine is still valid, it's alive and well, and that you know it applies to Venezuela. Uh, Maybe you want to talk, for people who missed that day in school, you might want yeah. to talk about what the Monroe Doctrine is exactly. and how it developed. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So it was, um, and I don't know the details, um, but we can link articles to, to that. But it was interesting. It's interesting that it was originally developed um, uh, because of uh, Venezuela and U.S. support for um, um, non-interference in the um, uh, Latin American states, in particular in Venezuela. Um and um, um, it was originally conceived of by President Monroe as a kind of collective security doctrine. And then over time, it changed to, um, under Truman, uh, I'm sorry, under President the, the Theodore Roosevelt. For this hemisphere, collective for, security, yeah, for this uh, for the Western uh, hemisphere, mm -hmm. correct. Um, so basically it stated, uh, if you are an outside power, from outside of the Western Hemisphere, hemisphere, you should not interfere in the affairs of uh, the American states, uh, meaning North, Central, and Latin American states. If you're a European power specifically, stay out. Um, but then under Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the doctrine um, changed in how it was applied in that it... Um, uh, it was interpreted to um, keep foreign powers out but allow the United States to interfere in the affairs of sovereign states. To protect that. To protect mm -hmm. its vital interests. Got it. As a big, powerful state, uh, the United States saw itself as entitled to do that. And uh, I don't think that, uh, frankly, John Bolton... Um, has in mind the original interpretation 
of the Monroe Doctrine. I think he has more, uh, you know... Teddy Roosevelt, uh, right? Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> kind of outlook on the world. Um, and so uh, that is a very direct um, um, evidence to me, in my mind, uh, that we are uh, going in the direction of um, uh, the U.S. trying to act as the original hegemon. And of course, that is um, what we see in um, in in Asia and in uh, Eurasia. We we see China acting in uh, in this way in the South China Sea. We see Russia acting in this way in um, in Ukraine. It's interesting that uh, you know when uh, Mr. Putin is um, uh, complaining about uh, the role of the United States as a global hegemon. Um, he talks about multipolarity and multilateral cooperation um, in, a, in a more liberal view. Uh, and he talks about non-interference in, um, in, um, in, the, in other sovereign states. But his practice is different. His practice is more along the lines of what I discussed, a, a, move, of, a move towards... Um, regional hegemons. We see that even in um, in some of the European Union countries, like France. They talk about cooperation. Of course, Europe is a model of uh, liberal cooperation, but the way they act in Africa, for example, is as a, um, a regional hegemon. Um, maybe we can discuss that as well in some other podcast. Okay. But uh, this is my view of where we're moving, and that's natural because when you have a global hegemon, it's difficult to um, maintain, to, to really um, bear the burden. Uh, the cost is very easily, um, it, it can very easily get out of hand. It can very easily outweigh the benefits, and there, there can be a lot of free riders, as Mr. Uh, Peter Zion um, actually argues. I wonder if the Middle East is a good, is a battleground for your theory, because you have all the major powers with vital interests in the Middle East, and you have everybody there, China's especially visible in Iran, the biggest mm -hmm. trading partner with Iran, for example. You have Russia definitely with troops even in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And you have the U.S. and especially this administration with a, with um, strong ties to both Saudi Arabia and Israel. Mm -hmm. So there you have everybody in the same neighborhood at the same time, in spite of where their home base is. Right, uh, and that's why that's why there are conflicts there because all the powers in, interact, and because it's not clear which sphere of influence the region falls into. Of course, there's oil, which in the past was more important, but increasingly it will become less important. Um, but I agree with you. Yeah, so yeah. maybe, yeah, I think it supports your theory, actually. Yeah. yeah, it supports your theory. So it might become more peaceful then in the regions, but yet other countries, Russia and China, are very active in Latin America. You also have Africa, mm -hmm. where you have, is similar to the Middle East, you have all of these powers who well, are quite active in Africa. China, interestingly, has been more active in the non-French parts of Africa. I, is that it right? Has, yeah, hmm. it has uh, um, stayed out of um, French-controlled Africa, where, again, I would argue France is acting 
very much as uh, as a hegemon, um, um, and um, it's only recently that actually I think it's more on the French side that you see attempts to uh, link up with China and work with China to see if because the Chinese have been much better at profiting from Africa than the French have been. The French have maintained, um, you know, control sometimes via fairly brutal means. Um, well, you look at the history of Francophone Africa, Algeria, yeah. and so forth. There's a long history there. Not only long, even recent history, mm-hmm. I would argue. But um, although they have maintained control, um, and they have benefited, certainly, uh, economically, um, they haven't profited as much as the Chinese. So they want to maybe exchange some best practices. That's, that's the sense that I get. And how does the Commonwealth, all the Commonwealth nations fit into this? Because that's still a fairly big organization, if you think of all the Commonwealth countries together. The former British uh, Empire. Exactly. Um, Maybe you're more familiar with 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 mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, certainly, it's a loose, um, you know, network of uh, um, states which benefits um, Britain disproportionately, perhaps. Uh, but um, I'm not as familiar with with the Commonwealth as with other regions. Well, if you look at Britain um, post Brexit. Mm-hmm. You have a very similar situation to the United States, mm-hmm. which withdrawing mm-hmm. rather than expanding mm-hmm. outside their own sphere. So I think there's in the United States and in Great Britain there's a great uh, popular demand to focus on domestic issues, yeah, rather than international issues. Yeah, no doubt about that. So what do you think will happen then before in the next, uh, if, if President Trump is reelected mm-hmm. in 2020, which is a, there's at least a 50-50 chance of that, mm-hmm. no matter how you cut it, um, how will that affect what's going on in, in your bigger picture? How do you think that your geopolitical view of this regional, regional polarity, mm-hmm. will he play into that? And will we see more cooperation? We've got the Canada-Mexico agreement that hopefully will be ratified this fall. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be anywhere as contentious as the China trade agreement. Mm -hmm. So do you see more of a focus post-2020 elections on uh, tending to our own garden, minding our own neighborhood? Um, yes, uh, but I also see a big possibility of um, intervention, much more decisive intervention in Venezuela. Um, I, 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 I don't, I hate um, predictions in general, although um, when, I, when I talk about trends and possibilities, I, I, I should, you know, I try not to be blind to um, the risks from um, action or inaction on behalf of uh, governments uh, in the various regions that I'm interested in. So what I see for um, uh, the neighborhood, the U.S. and the neighborhood, and the Monroe Doctrine is that it will be, um, especially if he is still advised by Mr. Bolton at that time, uh, I see decisive action in Venezuela uh, with the 
um, election possibly secured by Mr. Trump, if he gets reelected, uh, he, so far, let's be honest, he has failed at most um, international negotiations uh, he has engaged in, uh, in terms of international relations. So far, he has underperformed, and he will want to do something spectacular. Um, and he will be after um, his legacy at that point. Uh, he will want to leave a legacy of a decisive president uh, who resolves issues. And there is no other, there's just no other way uh, that the Venezuelan crisis and the pressure it exerts on the United States, um, there's no way that it can be resolved. Uh, even militarily, it possibly will not be resolved, but um, I'm afraid that, um, you know, the administration will try something radical. Uh, maybe not intervention by military forces, but maybe airstrikes or going after the cartels in a much more visible way, not just a blockade. So that's just my opinion. And for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. And mm. so it could be that other powers with interests in Venezuela and Venezuela oil could have a reaction to that as well. It is um, indeed uh, risky um, because China has business interests. And um, right. Guaido was very smart to uh, when he was trying to... Um, take over, uh, he uh, gave reassurance to, reassurances to the Chinese that their business interests would be protected. Um, so uh, the administration should try carefully. And mm -hmm. there's, of course, Russia. Russia is, whereas China is there more for, in my opinion, uh, for uh, business. Uh, Russia is there to just um, stick it to the United States. And, cause trouble. Yeah, cause trouble <laughs> uh, in um you know, payback for Ukraine and other places where there are tensions in Russia's backyard. So it's risky and um, uh, it's dangerous. But uh, again, um, the current uh, status quo is untenable. It is creating too much of a problem for the United States on many levels. It was reported over the weekend that uh, the Trump administration has been in negotiations with a socialist leader, Cabello, I think. Um, but now that that's been revealed, I doubt it's as, mm. <laughs> as successful as it might have been. But I think there'll probably be ongoing efforts given the seriousness of this issue, mm -hmm. you know, even before then. And hopefully some of them will be successful, at, you know, short of military yeah. intervention. That would be hopefully. a happy ending, you know, to this story. Indeed. Oh, Nick, thank you very much for joining us today and I think you've given a new um, vantage point to people who are looking at Venezuela from just a political point of view because Maduro and Guaido it's very it's it's dramatic mm -hmm. but I think the other issues that how energy and the illegal drug traffic mm -hmm. you know intersect and and create problems and create the refugee add to the refugee crisis in our hemisphere, I think it's really enlightening to understand mm. that it's not a simple problem. No. With a simple ending, it's going to, to and it will have global ramifications. So yeah. we need to worry about Venezuela. Indeed. Is what you're saying. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It was we'll, my pleasure. Thank you. So we'll be um, 
linking some of the articles and books that Nick has talked about um, when we um, when your uh, the po- podcast is uh, posted, you'll be able to see those links and read those articles and get more details, more statistics. And you know, to anybody who's a, uh, a student of economic history, what has happened to Venezuela is without parallel. So it, it is it's a, a useful to study from that point of view too. Thank you, Larry, for the opportunity. You're welcome. <laughs>